Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good afternoon. My name is Mark Fullman. I'm an author and journalist and the national affairs editor at Mother Jones. I'm pleased to be the moderator for today's program with Congressman David Cicilline from Rhode Island. This is Congressman Cicilline's first visit to the Commonwealth Club. And as you heard, a return one for me. I was here recently to discuss my book, Trigger Points, Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America. Today, we turn to another subject of great importance to me, both as a journalist and as an American citizen, the rise of political extremism and the ongoing threats to our democracy. That's the prime focus of Congressman Cicilline's compelling new book, House on Fire, Fighting for Democracy in the Age of Political Arson. His book traces his journey from state and local politics in Rhode Island to his now more than a decade serving in Congress, where he has led on various progressive issues and grappled with what I think can only be described as a turbulent and highly consequential era of our national politics. Congressman Cicilline, great to see you and welcome to San Francisco and the Commonwealth Club. Thank you very much, Mark. It's uh, great to be here. And before we begin, I just want to say thank you for the incredible work that you have done on gun violence. You have been a really important resource for many of us in the Congress who are fighting for common sense gun safety proposals. So it's a great honor to have this conversation with you. Thank you so much. So before we jump into the conversation, a reminder, we want those of you watching this online to be involved, so please put your questions in the YouTube chat box, and those will come to me during our program. Okay, so let's jump in. So it's early September. Uh, We've just officially entered the home stretch of midterm election season, and I think to say that this is a turbulent time is almost understatement, right? Um, Particularly with what we've seen just in the last month or so with the uh, seizure of highly classified documents in Mar-a-Lago, the residence of former President Trump, um, various ongoing investigations, a lot of political heat on a number of subjects. Uh, what are your thoughts currently on the, on the state of the country as we head toward Election Day? Well, I think you know one of the reasons I wrote this book and I wanted it to be uh, published before the midterms was it's an effort to really sound the alarm Uh, about what I think uh, our country is facing. I think this is one of the most challenging moments in the history of our country, certainly in my lifetime, and that the threat to democracy is very real. And so this election is not just about who's going to control the House and the Senate, but whether or not we are going to elect people who are committed to preserving American democracy, or we are going to elect uh, a party to be in control who is not your parents' Republican Party. This is a party of chaos and corruption and QAnon and Marjorie Taylor Greene and the insurrection and the big lie and excusing the misconduct of the former president regardless of what it is. And this has really dangerous consequences for the future of American democracy and for our place as a leader in the world uh, as, a, as a strong democracy. So the good news is I think um, – People are beginning to understand what's at stake. Uh, I think it was reported just a few days ago that for the first time ever, the number one issue that voters are looking at in the midterms is defending democracy. Can you imagine? I mean, that has never been a question in America. But I think it's because people understand that this threat is real and that the president continues to build, the former president continues to 
earn a lot of support and have a lot of momentum for this Trumpist ultra MAGA movement that is fundamentally anti-democratic. And so um, I'm hopeful because we've got great candidates. We have people who understand that, you know, Democrats have delivered on a lot of important issues and we're a party committed to preserving freedom and democracy in this country. And there's another party that's not. You opened House of Fire with your experience on January 6th, 2021. Could you talk a little bit about what that day was like for you? Yes. Um, actually, I, I opened the book with the one-year anniversary because, right. yeah, because I wanted to make a point that in the, the year after where we were commemorating this bloody attack on American democracy that caused the death of five people and dozens of police officers to be injured— we were commemorating that day, and we continued to only have two Republicans, one who couldn't be there because his first job was um, expected any day, and that's Adam Kinzinger, mm-hmm. and Liz Cheney, who participated. And that was the only participation from the Republican Party because they were all, for the most part, still promoting the big lie that Donald Trump actually won the election and that some of them were even saying what happened on January 6th with a tourist visit. So this is a somber day, and... Um, you know, I was recounting in the early part of the book what January 6th was like. That day, I was not on the floor, fortunate for me, because we were taking turns uh, because of COVID. Not everyone could be on the floor at the same time. And so it wasn't my turn to be on the floor yet. I was in my office in the Rayburn office building, and we were notified to shelter in place to remain in our office. I remember my chief of staff locking the door and then began to watch the events unfold on television um, and one of my colleagues, Ted Liu, came to my office with his chief of staff to shelter because he had been evacuated from his office building. And I had actually watched earlier in the day the president's speech on the ellipse, and it was just this continuation of uh, this sort of outrage about the election having been stolen from him. And Did that give you a sense of what, what might have been coming? Yeah, I mean, I knew that you know he was encouraging people to come to the Capitol, but I didn't actually fully appreciate the role he had played in the days before January 6th. I became much more familiar with that in the days after January 6th because, you know, a lot of people thought, oh, the president's participation was, you know, that morning. He gave a fiery speech. And there was even some people suggesting, oh, people got carried away. They came to the Capitol. They got overly excited. Well, we now know, of course, that this was a well-planned, financed, and executed plot to keep Donald Trump in office, despite the fact that he had lost the election, the American people had made a different choice. And the more we learned in both during the, our work for the impeachment trial, but also the January 6th committee, you know, this notion that people just got carried away is obviously now completely um, refuted. But I remember watching this and thinking like, this, this can't be happening in America. Like people coming to the Capitol and breaking in in an effort to stop the meeting of the Electoral College. And, you know, what's important to remember is this this attack was not planned on January 5th or January 2nd or December. It was the day was picked because this was the day of the meeting of the Electoral College which represents the peaceful transfer of power from one president to another that has happened in every single presidential election except the one of Donald Trump, the, the January 2020. Right, even the most contested ones. Even the most contested ones, even ones during wartime. It, the peaceful transfer of power was never disrupted. And that was the great hallmark of our democracy. It was an example to the world that no matter how hard fought, no matter how bitter 
uh, when the people spoke, that was the, the end of it, and power was transferred peacefully. This was the first time a president refused to accept the results of an election and refused to allow or tried to stop the peaceful transfer of power. And we should have known this. I mean, the president was describing, the former president was describing the election as rigged before it happened and as corrupt before it even, he even lost, I think anticipating he was going to lose. Um, but if you, if you look at what you know, I recount in the book, but what we recounted in the trial, this was a president who never had any intention of giving up power and was prepared to use the office and the people around him to literally engage in a coup to overthrow or prevent the lawfully elected president from taking a seat. And, and I just remember watching that on January 6th and thinking, you know, I also serve on the Foreign Affairs Committee. I serve on the Judiciary Committee and the Foreign Affairs Committee. We spent a lot of money around the world promoting democracy right. and human rights. And I thought watching this, like, how is this going to impact our ability to promote democracy around the world when our very own democracy is under attack in America? And uh, I think yeah, like I think everyone just sort of horrified by the... Quite devastating from that perspective, right? What it was doing to our perception of the United States around the world. Yeah, um, yeah I think, as you say, you know, we know now, and, and to some extent leading up to that moment, that the former president had, had told the public this is what he was going to do and began, began to learn a lot more about the planning and preparation that went into it. Um, of course, a lot of that was then learned through the investigative work of the impeachment process, which you participated in. You were a, a man, impeachment manager for the second trial. Um, talk a little bit about that. How did you feel when uh, Donald Trump was narrowly acquitted by the Senate? Um, what did you conclude at that moment? And, and you also, in the book, you talk about your colleagues across the aisle as being cowardly and how they responded to this uh, yeah. assault on democracy. Yeah, I mean, I, per- I was fortunate enough to participate as a member of the Judiciary Committee in the first impeachment and then to serve as an impeachment prosecutor in the second impeachment or as impeachment manager. And, um, you know, what was, you know, shocking to me as a lawyer is, you know, you have a jury in most cases um, where, you know, you present the evidence and challenge the evidence and they have to apply the law and they make a judgment. And you have to make particular, particularly certain that those jurors don't have a preconceived idea of how they're going to rule so they have an open mind. This is the only time you try a case and the jurors are out giving statements about what they're going to do before they've even listened to the evidence. Mm-hmm. It's kind of surprising. So, or preventing the evidence. from Or preventing the evidence. So we, we knew this was going to be a challenge. But, you know, from that very moment, that night, um, when these events unfolded, it was very clear to me that we had to move forward with an article of impeachment because it just could not be the case that a president who instigated or incited a violent over, attempted overthrow of the government and a violent and bloody attack on our democracy uh, could get a pass simply because he did it close to the time he was supposed to leave. I mean, it just was so clear to me. As After we presented the evidence, you know, throughout the trial, I think it was clear to all of us, the evidence was overwhelming. Like, there was no way that you could view this evidence and not conclude that Donald Trump was responsible for the events of January 6th. It was, you know, the evidence was really uncontroverted. So what the Republican senators did who refused to acquit him, and I will say it is the most bipartisan um, vote to acquit, it was a clear majority of the United States Senate voted to find, found the president guilty of inciting a violent insurrection against the United States, just hearing those words. But it wasn't the supermajority that we needed. Um, but what was very clear to me is that 
the Republicans who voted to acquit the president had to figure out how do they deal with this overwhelming body of evidence. And so what they did is they said, oh, we're not saying he didn't do it, but simply because he's a former president, he's left office, we are barred under the rules from right. impeaching him and or convicting him. Now, of course, that's not true. There was lots of precedents for that, including uh, William Belknap, the secretary of the Navy, was a, a, a convicted or was impeached after he had left office. So there was precedent for it, but they had to figure out a way, how do we square the overwhelming evidence with our desire to acquit the president because we don't want to face a Republican primary? And that's really what it was about. They, in my view, they, they really betrayed their oath as a juror because of their own political um, concerns about their own political future. And so what they did was, I mean, when Mitch McConnell, after he voted to acquit, he made that speech on the floor which I write about in the book, I mean, he could have been an impeachment manager. It was as powerful a speech as ever given about Donald Trump's culpability. Mm-hmm. But then he said, but of course, we can't acquit him or convict him because uh, he's out of office and, and impeachments are only for people who are in office. And, um, you know, that's not true. And they made a motion to dismiss the article of impeachment at the beginning of the trial. We prevailed in that motion. And that normally means that's the law of the case. Now you're required to follow the oath you took as a juror and, and make a decision based on the evidence. But many of the jurors, in fact, did the opposite. They said, even though we voted to proceed, we're going to say that this was the reason for not convicting him. And in fact, I don't think there was a single member who spoke publicly who voted to acquit the defendant who ever said he didn't commit the offense. I think they all spoke about he's already out of office and it's not applicable, which was sort of a cowardly way to get out of really what their duty was, which was to convict the president and make certain he could never again um, hold federal office in this country. Yeah, it seemed just an extraordinary kind of um, undermining of, of a sense of the rule of law in, in the country versus the political calculations going on in the Republican Party. Um, and I think, unfortunately, the, the outcome then led a lot of people in the country to think, well, he didn't do it. He's he's not guilty, right? It really muddied the waters, I think, in effect. Um, on that note, I'm curious to hear about your perspective on the ongoing hearings that we're having on January 6th with the House Committee, your colleagues, um, how that's gone so far, and what you want or expect to see coming now in the fall as they re, uh, reconvene for more. I think the uh, January 6th Committee has done a really spectacular job and a, an extraordinary service to the country. It's a bipartisan committee, obviously, and I particularly applaud the Republican members who um, endure a lot for doing what's right to protect democracy and, and, and speak up for the truth. Liz Cheney lost her position, the leadership lost her election, uh, a re-election to Congress because of, of doing the right thing. So these are true heroes of democracy. And I think they've done a really excellent job of presenting the evidence, almost all of it coming from the mouths of Republican witnesses, very often people um, very cl- formerly very close to the former president who were familiar with the facts and circumstances leading up to the events of January 6th. Um, I expect that they will conclude with a report and a set of legislative recommendations to, to be certain we're doing everything we can to prevent this from ever happening again. But my view, which I, you know, I hope the book helps argue for, is that, look, in the end, um, the American people have to make the right decision, and the virtue is really in the voters. What I saw in the city of Providence was that with a former mayor who was corrupt and who um, 
continue to engage in behavior, I think, that was both dishonest and undermined the well-being of the residents of that city. It was ultimately up to the voters to say they'd had enough, and they elected me, and, and we took the city in a different direction. I think the same thing has to happen here, that voters have to say enough is enough and reject anyone who doesn't speak the truth about this threat and who doesn't speak up for democracy and not vote for people who are willing in any way to undermine American democracy. And I think, you know, the the best way to make sure this never happens again, in addition to a bunch of legislative efforts, is to make sure that every single person who is responsible in any way for any of this attempted coup is held accountable. And that's a centerpiece of the rule of law. We're taught since we're this big, no one is above the law. And if that's really true, then that includes the former president as well. And I expect the Department of Justice to continue to do its work. And it will be hard if the former president is criminally charged. It will be difficult for the country. But it's part of the healing process. It's part of the restoring the soul of this country and part of showing the world that, yeah, this can happen even in a great democracy like America. You can, they can elect a president who engages in this kind of behavior. But the difference in America is that person is investigated and charged and convicted and punished, even if he's the former president, because in America, no one is above the law. We have to make sure that that's the case. Right. But so are you concerned that we will be able to, to achieve what you're describing? Um, in some ways, it seems like, you know, we've been going through a, a long and prolonged stress test for our system of democracy, right? With these investigations with, and, and with the work of the committee, I mean, will that, will the truth that they are revealing, I think in quite vivid terms, will it land? There's a, a very large section of the country or, you know, section of the population that doesn't buy any of it and is, is, you know, beholden to a very different media environment and following politicians who don't tell the truth, uh, foremost, of course, the, the former president, but also everyone around him who's enabled that. Um, you know, are you concerned that as good of a job as, as you say they're doing, that it won't have the effect it needs to have in terms of, of accountability and public perception of what really has happened? Yeah, look, I think there's a segment of the population who uh, will not accept any of the judgments that the Department of Justice will make, that a jury might make, that uh, the, the district attorney in the state of Georgia might make. But like, you can't not proceed with both prosecutions and holding people accountable through prosecutions because people are, you know, distrusting. You know, there's 30 percent, no matter what you say to them, you know, that phrase that Donald Trump said, I could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and it wouldn't change my support. He's proving it's proving to be somewhat true. And I think that's a fact, and we just have to sort of acknowledge that. But I think we still have to be governed by the rule of law, which says everyone is treated the same. And if you engage in this kind of conduct and you've committed an offense, you have to be charged. And if you're guilty, you have to be punished. Like, we have an opportunity, both in the state of Georgia and the state of New York and the Department of Justice, to make sure that we give life to that 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 notion that no one is above the law. And I have confidence. Look, it's taking much longer than anyone wants. Um, you know, I think like most people, I wish the Attorney General would move more quickly. The good news is the Attorney General doesn't care at all what I think, which is exactly how it's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. My guess is he wants to be certain that they're doing this methodically and carefully, and they understand what it would implicate if a former president is charged with a federal offense and they want to be certain that it is being done with no room for error and that takes a long time and so i have a lot of confidence in the heroes in the law enforcement and the justice department and district attorney's offices that are doing these investigations and this work 
and I'm an optimist. I believe in democracy. I believe in the end. People will be held accountable, and we will look back on this very dark period in our history and say this was hard, but we met the moment, and we, the, the test proved that American democracy is strong. Yeah, I think we're at a very interesting moment of tension in terms of how this is all being framed. And I'm wondering your thoughts about this as well, uh, particularly President Biden's recent speech in Philadelphia, um, I think really gets at the question of this tension between doing what's right and and uh, necessary in terms of preserving the rule of law, as you're describing, um, and also dealing with the intense political cross currents in the country. Um, so his real pivot to calling out more forcefully the, the dangers uh, from what he called MAGA Republicans and, and from the former president who he's now going after explicitly in speeches. Um, I'm, I'm wondering what your perspective is on that. Is that a prudent way to do this at, at yeah, a time I where things feel very volatile? Absolutely. I think it's a very important way to, a very important thing for the president to do. You know, I think he, the president has been very smart. Um, he's worked very closely with Democrats and Republicans, but mostly Democrats most of the time who are willing to work with him. To get a lot of important things done for the American people, we passed the American Rescue Plan to really crush this virus and to address the economic uh, consequences that followed from it. We did the Biden Infrastructure Bill, which was mostly Democrats, a few Republicans, so it was bipartisan. Uh, We did the CHIPS Act. We did some um, gun safety legislation for the first time in 30 years. Uh, We've done a number of really important pieces of legislation that the president, I think, had to do first, you know, to demonstrate that working with Democrats and when possible with Republicans to deliver on the urgent priorities of the American people. And, you know, with that wind at his back, he can now say, and by the way, you know, here's one party that's actually delivering on all of these important things. And virtually every step of the way, the Republicans either voted no or stood in the way. And by the way, they are also a considerable threat to American democracy. That this is not a normal election where you can just choose between candidates who have different environmental policy or different energy policy or different health policy. But we have one political party that is continuing to promote the big lie and continuing to undermine American democracy. And frankly, in many ways, the Republicans who are around Donald Trump and who continue to say things like January 6th was really um, much like a tourist visit or if... If Donald Trump is held accountable, there will be blood in the streets and those kinds of really irresponsible statements. In some ways, they're worse, because the truth is, if after the election, when Donald Trump said, I really won, every one of those Republicans said, no, actually, Mr. President, you didn't. You lost fair and square. That would have been the end of it. He would have been some sort of crazy rambling man at Mar-a-Lago still saying he won. They gave it life by repeating it, by continuing to promote it, because they saw it as their path back to power. And that's why I think when the Democrats talk about we're putting people over politics uh, and the Republicans are determined to get back into power at any cost, including betraying American democracy, including undermining the institutions of our democracy, including not speaking the truth or condemning the ex-president for his conduct, that is a stark and alarming choice. And so I think... um, we're at a very dangerous moment for American democracy. One of the reasons I wanted the book to come out before the midterms was to, to sort of make that point that everyone has to make protecting American democracy, in my view, the number one priority in their voting decision. And I think if you do that, you vote for the Democrats because we're committed to protecting American democracy. You might, you know, someone said the other day, a friend of mine who's a 
Republicans who said, you know, we have a lot of disagreements on a lot of policies, but right now, let's stay united on protecting American democracy. And then we can fight about the other stuff later. Can I ask you who that is? That's a, a good friend in Rhode Island, okay. you know, not an elected official. But, um, and I think that's really true. I think we, there, there are lots of things we disagree on, but all of those things will be made more difficult if we don't live in a democracy. And I think we have a very real threat to American democracy by this Trumpist movement, this MAGA ultra Republicans. And I think the president, absolutely, the way he did it in that place, reminding everyone that was the birthplace of American democracy and it's worth fighting for. And I think you're going to see the nobility and virtue of voters come out in November to make sure that we continue to have a democracy in this country. Yeah, I think inherent in, in balancing those messages, it's tricky because, um, you know, on the one hand, I think you're saying the um, the need to express to the public that, you know, here are all the things that we've done to help people and to advance the country, combined with the idea that there's this dire threat to the system. Um, you know, what is the right balance with that? Part of the reason I wanted to ask about your, your Republican friend is also hand in hand with the question of bipartisanship and this, you know, the sort of cliches we have around working together and all of that that seems very distant right now at this time in our country. And I'm wondering if you have um, Republicans that you feel you have good relations, relationships with now in the House who you want to work with more going forward. Who, who and what would that look like? Yeah, I mean, I will be very honest. Um, I have some I mean, I think before Donald Trump was elected president, I had a lot of Republicans that I considered friends. And, you know, I didn't socialize with, but had real friendships with. And I just presumed, you know, they had different views on a whole range of issues because they were reflecting the views of their constituents. And while my views were very different and I thought they reflected uh, my constituents, I assumed they were doing the same. And I just accepted that. And I will say that after watching the behavior of the former president, Donald Trump, you know, engage in behavior that really undermined institutions of our democracy, that undermined our leadership in the world, that undermined the truth in terms of, you know, his claims that he won the election and his claims that, you know, he wanted to blow up NATO and, you know, undermining the intelligence agencies. And, you know, the list goes on and on. And watching my Republican colleagues refuse in any way <clears throat> to speak up, to hold him accountable, to criticize him for engaging this kind of behavior, I, I really, at the end of it, look at them in a different way today. And I say that with some sadness because I, some of them I had real friendships, but it, it changed my view of them. If they were willing to remain silent when just because he was a, uh, the president from their party was engaging in such dangerous behavior and behavior which really was weakening our standing in the world and the strength of our democracy, I couldn't look at them in the same way. And so I still have some friends. I mean, I have... Colleagues that I work with really closely, Ken Buck is an example in Colorado. He and I have been leading the work on reigning in big tech and did a big antitrust investigation. He and I don't agree on any other issue. We found this one area, and we are ferociously working together on it to, to get something done to the benefit of small businesses and the American people and reigning in big tech. So I've tried to find people. I, I work with some of my Republican colleagues on the assault weapons ban, you know, but you have to sort of pick your spots. But I think fundamentally, I look at them differently, the ones at least who didn't speak up in defense of American democracy in a time of, I think, tremendous peril. And it's been hard to kind of overcome that. Mm -hmm. 
I'm wondering what you might be most concerned about if the Democrats lose the House majority this fall, as is being predicted. I think, you know, we're seeing the, the race, the overall picture narrowing now, but that's still the, the perceived uh, outcome. Well, I mean, I think the thing that worries me the most is that Republicans will prevent the work of the January 6th committee uh, to continue. They will attempt to interfere with the ongoing investigation by the Department of Justice. And by that, I mean, you know, bring in the attorney general for, you know, hearings to just kind of keep him busy, move to impeach everyone, you know. So I'm concerned that they will disrupt the important work to hold individuals accountable who were involved in planning and executing and financing the January 6th attack on our democracy. I'm also concerned about, you know, I think anyone who watched Kevin McCarthy should be very worried about the willingness of the Republican Party to certify the election results. If Donald Trump runs again Mm -hmm. and loses again, um, I don't think anyone can have any confidence that Kevin McCarthy will certify the election results. Um, And I think if if all you care about is the ability to have your voice heard in a presidential election, we don't have to wonder, will Kevin McCarthy refuse to certify the election? We know he won't. He already did it in 2020. So I think that's the thing that alarms me the most. We have some questions from our audience here. Um, One that I was also looking forward to asking about too was the role of, of big tech. And it's, this is an area that you've been focused on in terms of antitrust, uh, privacy issues. We've had a huge problem with disinformation in our elections now, as you talk about in the book. Um, what is it that you are most focused on with big tech? You know, here in the Bay Area, we're home to some of the biggest companies. Um, you know, what's your greatest concern and what do you want to see from big tech leaders going forward? Well, I think what, what we've learned is that big tech cannot be trusted to uh, enforce or regulate themselves. And um, we need more competition in this space. But, you know, big tech has allowed people to disseminate rapidly to millions of viewers or listeners false information about candidates or about events and with no liability for that those misrepresentations. You know, if I try to say something that's untrue in the Providence Journal, someone will sue me and the Providence Journal will have to pay and I'll have to pay. And there's a system to prevent people from saying things which are not true and to um, prevent their wide dissemination. The exact opposite is the case with technology platforms. Their business model is to maximize the engagement of users. And it turns out, because that's how they make the most money, it turns out the biggest engagement comes from the most violent, most provocative, most untrue, most dangerous content. And so they have a business model that incentivizes the amplification of the worst stuff. We saw it in the presidential election. We see it in the events leading up to January 6th. They have contributed significantly, in my view, to the destruction or the, the dangers we face in American democracy because they have allowed the, you know, people to share completely false information and then to micro-target it to people who are susceptible of believing it. So it's a real problem. One of the solutions is more competition so that, you know, that they don't have the kind of market power they have. The other solution is to be sure that they have some responsibility for the amplification of toxic, untrue, dangerous content, and right now they have none. So I'm working in both of those areas, but this is a real problem. And I think, frankly, it's if people ask me, what's the one thing that's different today from 20 years ago in American democracy? It's the use of social media platforms to disseminate false, dangerous, untrue information to lots of people. 
and without any liability or responsibility, that's a real problem. And I think it's contributed to... I mean, the people who came on January 6th, without question, they absolutely believed that Donald Trump won the election by X number of million votes and that the corrupt Democrats stole it away from why? Because they read that in the dark recesses of the web because it was communicated by the former president and amplified by lots of his supporters. But, you know... They believe that they were radicalized by what they consumed and by online. mass media too, and right? by Fox mass media. News. But I, that, that is an interesting question here. I think there's a range of opinion about how much of a role tech and social media plays in that radicalization uh, process going on. You, yeah. you see it as significant, significant. And I think you're right. The, the ecosystem, which is not just the platforms and big tech, but Fox and Breitbart and online uh, podcast, like it's a whole ecosystem that is radicalizing people to believe a set of facts which are so not true and we have got to manage that you know the europeans are way ahead of us on this they have the digital markets act they're beginning to rein in these these big technology companies but we have a lot of work to do in this country to take on these huge corporate powers headquartered in this beautiful city Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, another audience question here what do you think are the the um additional reasons possibly why there aren't more Republican colleagues like Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger. Why aren't more Republicans responding to what's happened in the way that they are? Is it just that they fear, you know, that they won't be reelected without Trump's support? What else is going on here? It's a great question. And it's a question I get asked most often by my constituents. Like, why are these, why are these Republicans not speaking up? And I mean, after everything we've after seen. After everything. Now, right? Like, what? And, I, you know, I struggle with this because I, I, I like to believe that people who go into politics and run for office do it because they want to do good for their community and they want, and that it's not just about them. But I will say I can't come up with an explanation other than, um, their interest in re-election. I mean, you look at the Republican senators who voted to acquit Donald Trump, without, almost without exception, they all, there was talk of them having Republican primaries um, by someone supported by Donald Trump. And, you know, I test myself and I think, what if Hillary Clinton had won the presidential election? And it turned out she, you know, the Russians helped her to win by buying all kinds of advertising online and, and manipulating, you know, the, the technology platforms, that she stood at Helsinki with Vladimir Putin and undermined her own intelligence agency. And then she talked about the, you know, uh, that NATO was obsolete. And I go through all the things that, that Trump had done and did her, you know, uh, nomination acceptance speech at the White House. And, and would I still support Hillary Clinton? And the answer would be no. And well, then suppose she were to get a Democrat to run against you in a primary in Rhode Island as a sitting president, then I'd probably lose. But it never would occur to me that I would betray my country and um, continue to support someone who engaged in that behavior simply to hold on to my job. And so, I mean, I've been lucky. I love being in Congress, but I loved being a lawyer. I've loved being a law professor. I've always had stuff that I love to do. And if I got voted out of office because I did what I thought was right, I would do something else that would have meaning in my life and, and be gratifying to me. And that's a luxury, I think, that a lot of people in politics don't have because I can't come up with any other explanation than self-preservation as to why more Republicans don't stand up in the face of overwhelming evidence about this president's misconduct. And... I don't, I, I don't know. I, other than that. But isn't it a question that we need to be able to answer in order to try to improve the well, situation? The, the way that we answer it, I think, the way that we test the hypothesis is 
we show those Republicans that Donald Trump is not their path to power. If we can win the midterms and hold on to the House, hold on to the Senate, we will, I think, have broken the spell that Donald Trump has put forth. You need me to get back into power. If, in fact, they lose the House, they lose the Senate, he will no longer be able to make that argument. You know, you would think losing the House and losing the Senate and losing the White House in 2020 would be enough. But OK, we'll do it one more time. Mm-hmm. We win the House. We win the Senate. We will have proven that Donald Trump is not the Republicans path to power. And hopefully for the sake of our country, that will break the back of this ultra MAGA authoritarian Trumpist movement and give us back a Republican Party that, by the way, we need. We need a two party system in which we have a functioning Republican Party that can present its own ideas, that can challenge our ideas that will make the, you know, the product better. So that's the way I think we're going to test that. If, we're, if I'm right, then when we win that, when we hold on to the House, when we win the Senate, I think you'll see Republicans immediately begin to distance themselves from Donald Trump because they will no longer see him as their path to power. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at Kevin McCarthy. We saw it in real time. He got, went to the floor of the House and condemned, in the strongest terms, Donald Trump's conduct leading up to the events of January 6th. They went to Mar-a-Lago, come back, came back, and was a new person because I think he was persuaded in that meeting that his path to the speakership, his path to power, was through Donald Trump. And he was willing to say and do just about anything and, and forgive Donald Trump for just about any conduct to get back into power. And I think that's why... This midterm election is so critical. Mm-hmm. Another audience question. This is a, a theme that has come up a lot lately in, in our uh, political media coverage nationally, something that I wanted to ask you about as well, and that you write about in the book, this theme of uh, us being potentially headed for civil war. Um, you say in, in the book that you feel that we're at a more dangerous time than any other since the Civil War. This is kind of a remarkable framing to put on our current situation, and, and I'm wondering... Um, why you think that is, and if this is a, a productive way for us to be thinking and talking about the state of our country. I mean, what does that really look like when you think about, you know, in the mid-19th century, um, two armies squaring off north and south? I mean, I, it doesn't seem like we're at that place, but what, what are we talking about? Yeah, I mean, I don't remember the exact number, but there was a poll very recently that said, um, I think it was some very high percentage of Republicans think that a civil war of violence is likely. I mean, it's a very, so it's not just a view that people who are worried about American democracy, but even people who are supporting this sort of MAGA movement are. Right, and we've, we've also seen some public opinion polling in the last year or so about more kind of acceptance or justification for political violence, yeah. which is true. And that's really disturbing. And when you have, that's why I reacted so strongly to this statement by Lindsey Graham, where he basically said, you know, if Donald Trump is charged and the Department of Justice moves to hold him accountable, there will be blood in the streets or there will be violence. You know, a sitting United States senator to, to even suggest that that was a natural outcome of not liking the decision of the Department of Justice is just shocking. And he did finally kind of backpedal a little bit because he got so much condemnation. But look, I think we saw the events of January 6th. We see what's already happening at, you know, the FBI as a result of, you know, threats. Uh, by the Republicans, you know, to defund the FBI and calling into question they're doing their job. So I think we're in a in a different place in this country where um, the use of threats of violence have become more common uh, in co- the context of political um, achievements or political objectives. And 
I think we just have to be conscious of it. We should do everything we can. That's why I think the president's speech was so important to say it is never okay to advocate or engage in any violence simply because you don't like the outcome of election. You know what the response should be? Work extra hard in the next election and be sure your candidate wins. I mean, that's the, that's the answer to being dissatisfied. I lost my first election. I know that feeling. It's awful when you work hard and you believe you're the best candidate and you want to win and you believe your candidate was the best candidate and they lose. But the answer is can never be violence in this country. And I think we need everyone, whatever party you're from, whether you're not affiliated with the party, to be, you know, condemn that in its strongest forms. And I think what, what worries me is we don't hear that condemnation from our Republican colleagues. Not only, you know, bad enough that they're parroting some of the Trump lies, but then to not, to not affirmatively condemn any suggestion of violence against law enforcement, against Democrats, against judges, against the FBI. Like, this can't happen in America. And um, so, I, you know, look, I, I think, Civil War is a strong term, but, you know, that poll reflects people understand that there's a brewing battle in this country. And I think one of the reasons I wrote the book, and I've never written a book before, like that's, I'm not the writer, I'm usually the doer, but I felt like in this moment, I had a responsibility to do everything I could in addition to everything I'm already doing as a good citizen to try to defend democracy and as a member of Congress to help kind of raise the conscience of people about what's at stake and I'm just hoping the book is another reminder, another way to say to people, this election, American democracy is on the ballot, along with lots of other freedoms we have because we live in a democracy, like freedom to make healthcare decisions, including abortion services, freedom to marry the people we love, freedom to access contraceptions, and a whole bunch of other freedoms that we enjoy in this country that I think are really under threat. Yeah, so I think you're describing, again, this duality of, of what we can do as a, a nation to move forward, but then also to confront this very dangerous situation we're in. And I think a lot of people listening, something else I wanted to ask you about was, um, you know, w- what can ordinary citizens do is, is, is always, I think, on a lot of people's minds when they're looking at this kind of situation in our country. What can they do to help confront it as well? And you address this in the book and you say primarily, you know, make your voice heard and protest and, and don't, you know, how can we possibly accept this? And I think that's a lot of people would see that as important. But I think the question here also is what more can people do uh, to engage and try to do something as, as an ordinary citizen? I think, uh, you know, the importance of protesting, making your voice heard is really critical, but none of it matters if people don't vote. I mean, the single most powerful tool or weapon we have to protect American democracy is your vote. Everyone votes, we will protect our democracy. So I, I'd start off by saying everyone has to vote. No matter what else you do or don't do, vote in the midterms. Make certain your voice is heard. And I think the other thing is, and I tell people this all the time, and they say, well, what can I do? I feel like I'm doing my part. Whatever you are doing to be a good citizen, double it. Like whatever you're doing, you need to do more. Because the people who are working to undermine American democracy, who are working to, you know, who participated in the attempted coup to keep Donald Trump. Those folks are working hard, too, and they're working really hard. And so people who care about American democracy have to do more of whatever we're doing. I think one of the things that we have to do, and I do this myself, like you sometimes you be listening to talk radio and someone's saying something completely unsupported by facts and just completely untrue and a crazy criticism of Democrats or President Biden or uh, you know, stuff about Donald Trump winning or whatever. And we changed the channel. It was like, I'm not going to listen to this. You know? Or you read a letter to the editor, you think, ah, oh, and you just like turn the page. 
And I think what we have to do is confront that in every place it happens. And so when you hear it on the radio, call on your, you know, pull over, call on the car phone and contradict it and make a point of it. When you see a letter to the editor that's not true or that makes some crazy claim, just don't sigh and turn the page. Write a response to it with facts in it and with, you know, strong statements to support your argument. And then, you know, affirmatively do. Call up talk shows and make the case for what Democrats are doing and what the danger to our democracy and do the same thing in all these. So I think we have to engage and confront the, the untruthful statements and the efforts to undermine American democracy every place they occur and not just sort of get exasperated by it and tuned off, you know, turned off. And it's hard. And I think a lot of people think, like, look, I elected you. You're my member of Congress. You do this. I'm a school teacher. I'm a police officer. I have other stuff to do. This is not a moment in which the elected officials alone are going to be strong enough to save American democracy. If we're going to live in a democracy, it's going to require the persistent, deep engagement of every citizen of this country. And I think, you know, before Donald Trump was elected, a lot of people thought, oh, we live in a self-executing democracy. As long as you vote... Basically, everything will be okay. Maybe my candidate won't win, but no one ever thought that democracy was in danger. I think Donald Trump's election showed us that we don't live in a self-executing democracy. And, it's, and if we're going to hold on to it, we have to fight for it and fight for it every day in new and different ways and in a much deeper way than maybe people had to originally. And I'm sorry for that. And maybe one day we'll get back to a place where you don't have to be as active. But right now... This is a real threat, and it's going to require us to, that is, all of us to do more than we've ever done before to protect the market. Well, I wanted to press you a little bit on the notion of voting, the urging people to vote. I think, you know, no one would argue with the, the, the notion that fundamentally voting is, is essential in a democracy. But there has been some frustration voiced, I think, we've seen from people on the, on the left and, and in the media uh, of this idea that, you know, just go out and vote is, is what you need to do to respond to this. Um, I think people have heard that for a long time and feel exasperated in some ways by it. So I'm curious what you think of that. And um, again, to this idea of, you know, what else can people do? Is it perhaps at the community level um, rather than just responding to what they see in the media or, or so on? Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of frustration about voting. And I think some of that comes from the filibuster, which I also speak about in my book, which is a fundamentally anti-democratic device which ought not exist and which I think has contributed enormously. And we also see ways in which the Republican Party is making it harder to vote for a lot of people. That's right. right. And there's, you know, we have a a party in this country that is actively working to make it harder to vote all across the country. And the answer to that, again, is to vote out those people and elect people who are going to respect your right to vote and make it easier for you to vote and make certain your vote is counted. And so, like, there's no shortcut to this. We need to throw out anyone who's making it harder to vote. And the only way that can happen is if everyone votes. So you get back to the, the voting thing. But, but I think the other thing is, you know, there's a lot of frustration. And I think that comes from the frustration that things aren't happening. And I think a big piece of that has been the, at least on the national level, has been the filibuster, which I mentioned I talk about in the book. But there's a lot of work that can be done, as you mentioned, on the local level. There's a lot of work that's being done in organizations that are working to defend the right to vote, that are making sure that people are registered, that that are combating in lawsuits these efforts to make it harder to vote. So whatever way you're comfortable, if it's contributing to one of those organizations, if it's volunteering, if it's supporting in some other way, like there's lots of ways to get involved in defending our democracy. My message, and I hope the message of the book is whatever way you're comfortable doing, people always say, what should I do? Whatever you're comfortable doing, do more of that. But I, I think that's the, the moment we're in. And there's 
lots of great organizations and lots of great local leaders that are really involved in this work and um, are always looking for support and help. I want to ask you a little bit about guns and gun violence, a subject that's important to me, as you know. Um, you've been a strong advocate for, for tighter gun regulations. Um, but given the political environment we're in, what do you see as realistic policy or solutions going forward to address the issue of mass shootings, which we've seen growing worse in recent years, and gun violence more broadly, which is a big problem in our country? We talked a little bit before the show about how this is really a public health crisis and seeing it through that lens. Um, but what can we really do to, to make progress on this? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. President Obama used to say the problem with gun safety voters is, you know, it's always on our list. Um, we care a lot about gun safety, but we also care a lot about education and health care and the environment. And so it's always on the list. Um, and for a lot of, uh, you know, people who are gun uh, safety opponents, people who support no efforts to reduce gun violence, it's their only issue and their single issue voters. And President Obama used to say, you know, gun safety advocates need to become one, you know, single issue voters. I think that's hard because that's just not the way advocates are wired. They realize they're part of a complex community where there's lots of issues that matter. But but I do think making sure that when you're voting, you don't vote or support anyone, vote for or support anyone who doesn't support common sense gun safety legislation, period. I mean, this we have a gun violence epidemic in this country, as you write about so often. It's different than any other country in the world. And um, it's in part because it's just too easy for people who shouldn't have guns to get them. And we have easy access to some of the most dangerous kind of firearms that can that were designed like assault weapons for war to kill as many people as quickly as possible that belong on the battlefield in military combat and not in our neighborhoods. So I think it's a it's a real issue. I think, um, you know, the progress we made, which was some but not a lot, but some progress uh, on keeping our kids safe uh, act. Um, you know, I think that's a great first step. There's a lot more we need to do. Um, and I think, you know, the voices of young people and the voices of community advocates in this space has been really important. And we have to get to a place, you know, when people are afraid to send their kids to school or go to a movie theater or go to a synagogue or a church because they don't think they, they're going to be safe at these very sacred and important places in, the, in our communities, that's a problem. And we have to get to the place where it's a political liability if you don't do something about it. And rather than, And I think part of that is you know, getting rid of money in our politics so you can reduce the corrupting influence of money and, and the gun lobby. That's a big piece of it. Um, but we just have to elect people who are committed to doing something about it. Have you come to see a, a more incremental approach to change as, as better? Like we saw the recent legislation that passed finally with some steps toward, uh, you know, a little bit more gun safety policy in our country with funding for so-called red flag laws and um, some other, you know, uh, dealing with some of the, the loopholes in, in firearm regulation and gun ownership. Um, is this a better strategy given that, you know, for so many years, you know, things like the assault weapons ban have not been successful? Yeah, I, I think we should continue to try to do both. I think where we can make real progress, red flag laws make a real difference. They will save lives. Um, a number of other provisions in the bill we passed will make a real difference. I think so long as we save a single life, it's it's worth doing it. Um, but I think we should still be fighting hard for big changes that will significantly reduce uh, gun violence, particularly mass shootings like in the assault weapons. So I think we should keep doing working on both. Um, I think hopefully when people see they can vote for this gun safety legislation and 
get reelected, and it's not actually this like this idea of, oh, I can't vote for any of these bills. The NRA is against them all, and I won't get reelected. No, actually, that's not true. And I think when we prove that, we'll reduce the power of the gun lobby, too. Another big issue on the table this election season, reproductive rights with the landmark Supreme Court decision we saw this summer. Uh, what's your perspective on that and how that is affecting this election cycle? I think there's a lot of evidence that uh, the Dobbs decision, which reversed 50 years of, of well-established precedence in this country that gave women access to full reproductive health care, including abortion services, um, and the freedom to make their own decisions about their health care, um, I think it has been a mobilizing um, event in terms of people understanding that the election of the midterm election will have real consequences for not only abortion services, but also, you know, Justice Thomas in his dissenting opinion said we have to go back and look or we should look, go back and look at marriage equality and, you know, contraceptions, other rights that we all enjoy in this country, freedoms we have that we thought were settled by the Supreme Court, that we now see the Supreme Court dragging us back a generation. And I think that's very alarming. And uh, the good news is for every one of those things, there's a legislative fix. We can enact Roe versus Wade into statute. We can elect, uh, enact marriage equality into statute. We can make sure people have access to contraceptions by statute. We need two more senators, two more Democratic senators, and we need to hold the House and we'll get those bills to the president's desk and they'll be those freedoms will be protected in federal law. And I think that's what people realize. There's an answer to this. It's not just throwing up your arms and going, I can't believe the Supreme Court. There's a fix, but it requires us holding the House. It requires us to elect two more Democratic senators. We can do both of those things and we can protect all those freedoms that people are worried about right now in this country. In the book, you also propose some more stark policy going forward, um, ending the filibuster in the Senate, uh, expanding the Supreme Court. Talk a little bit about that, whether you think that's plausible in the near term and, and why you believe those are, are good yeah. policies. I mean, I think ending the filibuster is a, something I've thought for a long time. And I've written a, a piece where if the Senate's not prepared to, you know, as I always say, I'm not a senator, I have no say in this, but I have, we have dozens of really good bills, priorities of the American people that are sitting in the United States Senate because we can't get 10 Republicans to agree with them. Now, just remember, this, this is a device which lets the minority of the Senate overrule the will of the majority routinely. Like, they get to decide. That is anti-democratic. It was designed to slow progress on civil rights. It's not in the Constitution. And when I have these, Repul- these Democrats who clutch their pearls and say, what about when we go into the minority? How about just working really hard to deliver to the American people and staying in the majority? And if you lose, you work hard to get back. I mean, that's how democracy works. This is a terrible provision. And at the very least, if they won't abolish it completely, I've proposed, well, don't allow the filibuster to be invoked on issues of democracy, voting rights and civil rights. So you could pass H.R. 1, H.R. 4, the Voting Rights Act, H.R. 5, the Equality Act. Like on basic issues of democracy. I mean, think about this. We passed H.R. 1, the biggest pro-democracy bill in my generation, and we can't pass it in the Senate because of the anti-democratic filibuster. Like that can't be. So I think we've got to fix that or they have to fix that or figure out a way to get these to the president's desk. I think we have to abolish the Electoral College so we never again face the prospect of a majority of the American people electing one person and another person becoming president. That's also hard to explain when you're promoting democracy around the world. Um, I also think the Supreme Court, which has, you know, when people say, well, do you, what about packing the Supreme Court? I always say, look, I think the Republicans packing the Supreme Court was a terrible thing to do when they denied Merrick Garland 
even a hearing and when they jam through two justices without even a proper investigation. Like we have a court which is very out of balance where the country or, you know, is in a very different direction from the vast majority of the American people. If you care about the legitimacy of the court, this needs to be fixed because it will soon be the case. And it's already happening where people are going to say, wait a minute. Who are these nine people making these decisions that impact my lives? And so this is a question about really the credibility of the court. And so I think rebalancing the court by enlarging it, by enacting term limits, a number of reforms so that that people can, again, have confidence in the Supreme Court as as the body that actually settles law in this country. And it's not a political body is critical. I think all those things have to be on the table. And, you know, I'm a lawyer. I care a lot about the rule of law and people having confidence in our court system. So I think there's a lot of work to do to strengthen American democracy, make it more responsive to the will of the American people. And I write about that in the book. We have just a minute or so left. So this will be our our final question. Um, What do you want readers to take away foremost from your book? And and I think by the same token, what are you most focused on as we head into the election in November uh, specifically? What's on your mind? Yeah, I mean, what's on my mind is being sure that that Democrats hold the House. And so I'm traveling for candidates and um, doing all I can to make sure I support my colleagues who have tough races and make sure I get reelected myself. Um, but I want the, the book is fundamentally optimistic. You know, it, it uses my own life experiences as a lawyer, as a legislator, as a mayor, uh, to give me a lot of optimism about the strength of democracy and the way it works when it works well, but also to uh, sound the alarm about the dangers we face but ultimately to say, like, it's up to the American people to, to safeguard our democracy and to protect it and um, to make protecting it a really important priority in the midterms. But I use my life and kind of I've seen the great virtues and great heroes of American democracy. I've seen some of the worst, the underside and some of the worst elements of society as well as a criminal defense lawyer and as a as a mayor and as a state legislator, and as a member of Congress. And I'm fundamentally very optimistic about the future of American democracy because I have a lot of confidence and the American people, and I hope people will leave the reading of the book with a renewed sense of optimism about America's future. Okay, well, thank you, Congressman. It was a real pleasure to talk with you today. Uh, That's all the time we have for today's program. And I'd like to thank all of you as well for joining us today out there online and elsewhere. Uh, This program and others like it can be found on the Commonwealth Club's website at commonwealthclub.org. And make sure to read Congressman Cicilline's new book, House on Fire, Fighting for Democracy in the Age of Political Arson. I'm Mark Fullman of Mother Jones, and this Commonwealth Club program is now adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.